Welcome back. I'm your producer, Jack Bryan. On last week's episode, the Contra story blew up in the news, and hearings were held to investigate whether monies from the sale of missiles to Iran were used to fund the Contras. The hearings were narrow in focus, ignoring much of the evidence of cocaine smuggling and the broader implications of an organization known as the Enterprise which did operations for the CIA outside the bounds of congressional oversight. Now, while you'll hear my voice a few times throughout this episode, for now, I'd like to hand you off to my fellow producer and our host, John Cryer. Thanks, Jack. I am John Cryer, and this is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. It's now 1988. As Mattis and Carey's staff prepare for hearings of their own looking into the enterprise operations and drug smuggling, Mattis quits his job as a public defender to represent Alabama mercenary Jack Terrell, a.k.a. Colonel Flacco. Flacco, along with five other whistleblowers and low-level actors in the Contra operations, has been indicted for invading Nicaragua. I was indicted in Fort Lauderdale on six counts of violation of the Anti-Neutrality Act, the Arms Control Export Act, they looked through law books so diligently that one of the charges was conspiring to put a luggage tag on a suitcase that had a gun in it. On getting a copy of the indictment and meeting up with Jack, taking him through his initial appearance, the only issue was who isn't in the indictment? Somehow they forgot Oliver North. Somehow they forgot Rob Owen. Somehow they forgot John Hull. They forgot the puppet masters who were running the war, the White House and the State Department. It looked like a bunch of people from Decatur, Alabama, got together and decided they would invade Nicaragua, the country that we were at peace with, beyond belief. U.S. Attorney Leon Kellner is leading a grand jury investigation into at least some of the charges. What's at issue here is violation of U.S. law, namely the Neutrality Act. You can't organize a private military expedition from this country to attack a country that we are at peace with. Excuse me? I don't think we were exactly at peace with Nicaragua. The U.S. Attorney in Miami, Florida, I had directly accused, publicly, of involved in an illegal cover-up. And for the U.S. attorney in Miami, look at this, I indicted an arms shipment. I'm going after the root cause of the war. Aha! He finally prosecuted the arms shipment that Mattis said he would never charge. Ha! A slap in the face to me. I mean, they thought they would bury him in an indictment, force him to plead guilty. Oh my God, he was facing 30 years. Take a five-year rap, go to prison, and silence him. The indictment should have been laughed out of the courtroom. I walked out and said, we are going to put the war on trial. We are going to put the perpetrators on trial. So that was our first attempt to reframe the narrative and bring it back to reality. And then the issue was, how am I going to defend this guy? I don't have an office. I don't have a briefcase. I don't have any money. Where am I going to find a desk? Where am I going to find a phone number? Luckily, 
one of the defendants retained private counsel, and they let me use a desk in their law library to research the charges and to start really digging into the Neutrality Act, because the Neutrality Act is very rarely used, and it has been successfully used by the government to get at the problem of mercenary activity around the world. The Neutrality Act, well, it's not intended to cover up a real war. It was designed to stop purely mercenary activities. Our defense was that we certainly weren't at peace, and in fact, wholesale elements of the United States government either participated illegally supporting the war or knew of the war and did nothing to stop it. It was intriguing to try to pull away the layers of what does it mean to be neutral? What does it mean to be at peace? You either have a war or you don't. But to boil that down into a legal principle that would actually pass muster required a lot more work than just me sitting with a couple beers thinking how absurd it is to say that the United States was at peace with Nicaragua. The beautiful thing, and this is what I suggested to Kerry's staff, this was an opportunity to get discovery. Under the law, the government had to turn over all evidence regarding the activities of the defendants. So I had the opportunity as a criminal defense lawyer to request all of the information that the government had, classified information, law enforcement reports, all of the reports by people in the field as to what was going on during that period of time. So that was the first step that we took in the Terrell case. So we were recovering document after document, cable traffic, uh, all types of classified memos that put the, the CIA, put the FBI, the Department of Justice, everybody in a massive campaign to shut me up and to cover up what they were doing and even, even cover up what the government was doing for years. Discovery revealed that Oliver North was writing memos, we gotta get Terrell out of the picture. We gotta finesse him out. We gotta shut Jack Terrell down. He's a danger to us. Now, if that isn't selective prosecution, I don't know what is. And document after document, either generated by the FBI or the intelligence unit of the Miami Police Department was, the war's no secret, the contra training camps are in the Everglades, and they're shipping dynamite on commercial flights. When you, the FBI, are told that suspects in a domestic terrorism case are carrying cases of dynamite and putting them in the overhead passenger bins on passenger planes, what do you do? Well, in the case of the Miami FBI, you sit on it. So the FBI knew everything, and yet nobody did anything. So at some point in time, someone might say, maybe this was all sanctioned. So we used the discovery to file a series of motions. When we put a motion in front of the court challenging the legality of charging someone with neutrality violation, we then had the proof that the war existed 
So I took the evidence, provided it to John Kerry's staff, but also used it in a selective prosecution to point out that the only reason they picked Jack Terrell and five compadres to indict was because Jack Terrell was the original whistleblower on the entire secret war. So they had motive and they had the method to silence him. And that was indicting him. Well, the first indication that the case was not going to go well for them is one of the defendants, Shooter Joe Adams. And this is a man whose name is Shooter, a self-described bodyguard for the Contra leaders. So when he admitted his guilt in front of the judge, he could have been sentenced up five, ten, whatever, how many years. The judge decided the appropriate punishment was one day of probation because the judge saw through this exactly the way the public did. And that is why when I filed this massive motion to declare that, in fact, the neutrality statute could not be applied because we were at war, the judge actually granted us hearings and actually said, bring it on, Mr. Mattis. Show me in a courtroom how we were at war. At first blush, you would say it's pretty obvious, but how do you prove it in a court of law? And so I had to round up witnesses. I called Adolfo Calero, the head of the Contras. The guy actually running the war. I thought he would be a pretty darn good witness as to whether or not we were at peace. And I also called former CIA officer who was an analyst during the early part of the war who could testify. Now, from a litigation standpoint, there was the issue of classified information. And the government made a big deal about, Mattis is going to reveal to the court classified information. This is outrageous, judge. Don't let him do that. In fact, Mattis shouldn't be allowed to address any of these issues because they're all top secret. Well, the judge dealt with that in a very straightforward manner. He advised me at the beginning of the hearing, Mattis, if so much as one word comes out that is considered classified, you will be in a holding cell before the end of the day. So I got the message, step lightly. So I was constrained in my examination of the witnesses, including Adolfo Calero, including the CIA analyst, as to what I could ask without putting myself in jail. And that was a dance, but I wasn't thrown in jail. And in fact, when the government tried to cross-examine the CIA analyst and Adolfo Calero, the witnesses said, well, much of that is classified. I can't tell you. So it was sort of, it flew back and smacked the government in the face. And then fast forward a couple months, the judge issued an order dismissing the neutrality charges against all of the defendants, providing a 10-page opinion as to why the United States was not at peace. And the judge totally agreed, but not only with the Nicaraguan War, he went all the way back to Korea. And he said, you know, it's amazing what people have done, governments have done, administrations have done in these undeclared wars that we have around the country. We won. This was the first ever successful challenge of the Neutrality Act. 
in U.S. history. But the government wouldn't go away. The government wouldn't give up. They boldly said, well, we have Mr. Durrell going to Nicaragua with a sniper rifle because they had a couple counts in the indictment of Terrell actually taking some weapons into Central America, which is what you do when you go into war. But we still had those charges. And that is when I ramped up the selective prosecution argument before the court. And about that moment in time, the Iran-Contra committees were declassifying their own reports. And I was able to obtain the declassified testimony of the U.S. attorney from Miami because I had been calling him a criminal because he was engaged in the illegal cover-up. The Iran-Contra committees did, in fact, depose him in a classified setting. Buried in his testimony, he references, well, one night I got a call in the middle of the night and they asked me to put a wiretap on Jack Terrell. Now, what was extraordinary was he did this in 1986 at a period of time when he said that Jack Durrell was making all this up or that none of this had happened. But the most outrageous thing was the government is supposed to tell the defendant if you've been wiretapping him. They forgot to tell us that they had a wiretap. Well, as soon as I read that, I put together a motion asking for the U.S. attorney to be brought into court, asking for the wiretaps to be turned over, asking that there be an explanation to the judge why they violated a court order to turn over all evidence. My telephones were tapped. They went through my trash. They went through my motel room. Most likely were tapping the offices of a United States senator. And when we asked for this in discovery, they were too quick to want to get out of it. And to this day, I can't get it. And during this time, a federal judge had to hold the FBI in contempt of his court because they wouldn't give it to him. Well, you know what? Lo and behold, the U.S. attorney dropped the case within days. After years of blowing the whistle on a secret war, after being disparaged, marginalized, indicted, we won. Period. As Mattis defends Terrell, the Kerry hearings heat up. They politely gave John Kerry hearings, but not so politely shoved him into the middle of the night. This is Jonathan Weiner, a member of Kerry's investigation. Well, we didn't investigate Iran-Contra anymore. That was done. We investigated patterns of drug trafficking and arms trafficking and money laundering and people smuggling across borders and corruption of governments from these networks in the Caribbean and in Latin America. That was the start of the Kerry hearings as to what actually had gone on with the war and, more importantly, with the narcotics trafficking. Subcommittee on Narcotics, Terrorism, International Operations will come to order. So we were able to fill in a large part of the body of evidence regarding what happened on the Southern Front, regarding what happened with the cocaine smuggling, regarding what happened with the humanitarian aid. We permitted narcotics. I mean, we were complicitous as a country in narcotics traffic at the same time as we're spending countless dollars 
in this country to try to get rid of this problem. It's mind-boggling. Kerry committee hearings were nitty-gritty. Yes, sir. Narcotics proceeds were used to shore up the uh, Contra effort. Did you personally play a role in some of the transfer of that money? Yes, I did. Chasing documents, presenting hard evidence. We found that everywhere that there was drug trafficking, there were, there were drug transit zones, there was corruption. The two of them would go together. So we did Noriega. This is Jack Blum, chief counsel for the Kerry investigation. The second man who turned up on our screen very big time was General Noriega. And as you'll recall, uh, press accounts have said it. The government has, has made this public, so I'm not saying anything that's classified. Noriega was on our payroll. Okay, so it's time to talk about Panama. This is America's last major Cold War intervention in Central America. But to talk about Panama, we have to go back briefly, I promise, to the beginning of the 20th century. So in the early 1900s, it took months for you to travel from one end of the United States to the other. And to go by ship, you had to travel around the southern tip of South America. President Theodore Roosevelt set out to dig a long-sought canal through Panama, connecting the Pacific and Atlantic. But there's one problem. Panama was still part of Colombia. So Roosevelt funnels support to a Panamanian separatist movement, which wins independence in 1903. The new country assigns a lease for the canal zone in perpetuity with the United States and puts the canal zone under U.S. military control. Work on the canal is grueling. In 10 years of construction, 5,000 canal workers die, and the canal becomes one of the world's most important hubs for transportation, with Panama largely acting as an American client state. Tensions between the Panamanian people and the United States escalate, and in 1962, violence breaks out when Panamanian students try to fly a Panamanian flag in the canal zone. 21 Panamanians are killed in the riot that proceeds. In 1968, Panama's government is overthrown in a military coup, with Colonel Omar Torrijos emerging as the leader of the country. In 1977, Jimmy Carter signs a treaty saying the U.S. will vacate all troops from Panama by the year 2000. In the signing of treaties which will assure a peaceful and prosperous and secure future for an international waterway of great importance to us all. Reagan isn't a fan of this move. The Panama Canal Zone is sovereign United States territory, just as much as Alaska is, as well as the states carved from the Louisiana Purchase. We bought it, we paid for it, and General Torrio should be told we're going to keep it. Then, seven months into Reagan's administration, Torrijos's plane crashed. Reports as to whether it hit a mountain or blew up differ, but let's just say it was widely seen as suspicious. It didn't help those suspicions that the guy who takes over the country after is the CIA's main contact in Panama, Panama's head of military intelligence, General Manuel Noriega. He had been on the CIA payroll since the early 70s. The Nixon administration chose not to indict Noriega, even though they were well aware of his drug connections. When George Bush became President Ford's CIA director, he kept Noriega on the CIA payroll, even after he was caught spying on a U.S. military intelligence operation. As CIA director in the mid-1970s, George H.W. Bush increased Noriega's CIA salary to $100,000 a year, despite emerging evidence that Noriega was involved in drug trafficking. When Carter came into office in 1977, 
his CIA director claims that they shut Noriega off. But with Reagan and Bush in the White House in 81, Noriega is back on the CIA payroll. This time, his salary increases to $200,000. And Reagan used Noriega as a key ally in the Contra War, ignoring evidence that the dictator was also working with the Medellin drug cartel. During the time I was there, uh, Noriega invited Pablo Escobar, and I think it was Jorge Ochoa and uh, Carlos Ladere to Panama City to, to meet and they virtually franchised Central America for Colombian uh, drug dealers for the Medellin cartel. Now, we spent a lot of time in this series talking about how when the United States has a bottom line, it will accept behavior that would otherwise be unacceptable. And nobody learned this lesson better than Noriega. This is how Jose Blandon, Panama's Council General under Noriega, described him. But he is also a man who knows how to study people's weaknesses. A great part of Noriega's advancement is due to the fact that he works on people's weaknesses. And the Kerry hearings proved it. We have, as the absolute low point of the Contra War, Ali North having a meeting with General Noriega, and he recorded that meeting in great detail in his notebooks, in which he's bargaining with Noriega. Noriega says to him, I've got this terrible public relations problem over drugs. Uh, what can you do to help me? Here's what I'll do to help you. I'll assassinate the entire Sandinista leadership. I'll blow up buildings in Managua. Ali doesn't call the cops. What Ali does is he goes back to Poindexter, and Poindexter says, gee, that's a little bit extreme. Can't you get him to tone it down? Go back and meet with him again, which Ali does. This is CIA officer John Bacon. He was of such value to the United States government that his other activities would have to be tolerated. There is a conflict, that there are priorities, that here is a, a man who's a, a drug dealer who is at the same time being used to further U.S. interests in other fields. When things get hot for Noriega with the DEA, he simply gives them information on a rival drug trafficker or information on Fidel Castro, who he is still in contact with. Noriega helped Castro gather intelligence, run guns, and circumvent a U.S. trade embargo. You had John Kerry and Jesse Helms both fighting at Noriega was dirty and asking well, why has the Justice Department done nothing. And a lot of the questions as to why Noriega hadn't been indicted are directed at the U.S. attorney who oversees the biggest hub for cocaine trafficking in America, Leon Kellner. Now, Kellner, you'll remember, is the top law enforcement official in Southern Florida. He's the guy Mattis has exposed as being part of a cover-up in not just one, but two separate Contra-related cases. Well, reportedly, those exposures seriously damaged Kellner's reputation for independence. So now, in an attempt to salvage his credibility, Leon Kellner does something in the Noriega case that nobody sees coming. Kellner, having been burned reputationally for not bringing proper prosecutions, he was determined not to repeat it. So he decided as a presidential appointee that he was going to do that indictment, and he just moved it uh, without the permission of the Justice Department because he felt he had the case, and they weren't ready for it. General Noriega then claims that he has secret information that could embarrass the incoming U.S. President, George H.W. Bush. As Bush enters the presidency in January of 1989, his incoming administration tries to distance itself from Noriega, whose arrest becomes a high priority for the U.S. government. The United States 
United States tonight declared in effect that Panama's General Manuel Noriega is a threat to this country's national security. Mr. Noriega, the drug-indicted, drug-related, indicted dictator of Panama. We want to bring him to justice. We want to get him out, and we want to restore democracy to Panama. And so when you read these outrageous charges by a drug-related, indicted dictator, discount them. They are total lies. The new Bush administration then attempts to foment a coup in Panama using Panamanian guerrillas. The guerrillas capture Noriega, but when American military support fails to materialize, Noriega's personal guard defeats the coup and frees him. Bush denies any American involvement in the operation. This is some American operation, and I can tell you that is not true. Then, American troops near the canal start making maneuvers off the base. Soon, a firefight breaks out between Panamanian and American troops, followed by a full American invasion, codenamed Operation Just Cause, which kills thousands of Panamanians. Noriega is then arrested and extradited to the United States, where he gets sentenced to 40 years in prison, dying in 2014, still in custody. If any of these things had been discussed publicly, they never would have occurred. But instead, uh, it was all swept under the rug, and even as it began to emerge, what you got out of the administration, instead of acknowledging the problem, was one denial after another and one attempt after another to cover it up. And remember George Morales, the imprisoned drug smuggler who's helping Mattis' investigation? Well, he also testifies in the Kerry hearings. What was in it for you? Why'd you give away these planes? They promised me that they would take care of the legal activities. At this point in time, did you make some agreement about running guns down to various locations and bringing drugs back? Yes, I did. So buying guns for them, supply safety houses for them in South Florida. Where was the money coming from? Drugs. Morales knew he wasn't facing a bright future, nor was I. However, Morales' CIA defense would not have been admissible in court. Meantime, he faces sentencing in March and is expected to serve a minimum of 10 years. He was reading the tea leaves. Kerry was being marginalized. The Iran-Contra narrative was it was a small operation aiding the Contras. So Morales's escape plan was he found out one of his arch nemesis, the man he intensely dislikes, the cocaine smuggler and the king of quailers of Cartagena. Mono Obeo has just been extradited from Colombia to Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places. These indictments were sitting all across the United States, but no one was ever coming out of Colombia. And all of a sudden, the U.S. attorney in Tulsa, Oklahoma, realized he had a very dangerous cartel leader, one of the first ever extradited, in custody. And he had, he had to put the man on trial and he needed witnesses. Mono Obeo had worked with Morales. In fact, Morales, one of his indictments alleged that Morales was shipping millions of quaaludes. Well, they were Mono Obeo's quaaludes. So that's when George Morales came up with the idea that he would take down a nemesis of his and help himself in front of a judge. So George Morales, on his own, reached out to prosecutors in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Number one 
rule for all criminal defense clients. Don't take it upon yourself to call prosecutors. But George Morales was a self-assured, confident guy. So he called up the prosecutor and said, oh yeah, I know all about the guy. And not only would he help them out with his knowledge of Mono Obeo, but that he would talk to other witnesses, i.e. pilots, who he knew had worked for Mono Obeo. So lo and behold, the prosecutors, really thoughtful, fact-oriented, probably the most decent, bright prosecutors I had run into in a long time, because they were focused. They were focused on winning a case. So that was the the George Morales escape plan. And did that make sense, Jimmy? Would this judge have any leverage over what a sentencing would be in his his case? No. When he when he first approached me, of course, it made no sense at all that a prosecutor from Tulsa, Oklahoma, could actually have an impact on your case in South Florida, given the fact that you're a person non grata in the courthouse. It was much like everything else George Morales did in his life, rather grandiose. But that's who he was. And Mattis also agrees to defend George Morales. And just as Mattis shared information with the Kerry Committee relating to Jack Terrell's case, he's also sharing information with them relating to George Morales's case. So Morales didn't just agree to bring in one witness. He agreed to help the government prove their case. He put together credible witnesses for the prosecution of Mono Obeo. Morales, by this time, has been transferred to Tulsa, Oklahoma, Muskogee County Jail. I then basically started commuting to Tulsa with witnesses to assist the United States government in the prosecution of Mono Obeo. Mono Obeo had a brilliant criminal defense lawyer, Racehorse Haynes, famous criminal defense lawyer. So the government knew that they were going to have every witness cross-examined. You're doing this because you're serving 20 years. You would say anything to get out of prison. That's the typical cross-examination by the defense. So we meet with the prosecutors and George lays out, I'm gonna get you the ultimate witness. I'm gonna get you a witness with nothing to hide. We'll tell it all. And he's certainly not doing this because he has a prison sentence. And the prosecutor's eyes are like, they've hit the lottery. Okay, so the guy Morales is bringing in, like a bunch of people in this story, goes by two names. I'm sorry, he just does. Tito and Hemingway. He was a drug smuggler in the Florida Keys whose name was Tito, i.e. Ernesto, i.e. Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway was the chief of security for George Morales. And if you ever see the testimony in trials or in Senate testimony, the pilots would always say, yeah, and Tito was my co-pilot. They would whisper the name. The prosecutors loved it. But that's when Morales said, well, you know, the only problem is he's in Colombia. And the prosecutors smartly say, well, how do you entail and getting him into the United States? And he just turns slightly and says, well, John Mattis will go get him. It's like, hello, when did I get drafted? It was like, this is the first I'm hearing about this, guys. And we're in the middle of the 
cartel wars. There's another bombing in Bogota, another assassination, an attack on the judiciary. I mean, it was one thing after the other. It was urban warfare in Bogota. The burning, the bombing, the terror was followed today by what the drug bosses called a communique, a one-page letter dropped off at a radio station in which the drug bosses declare total war against the government, the industrial elite, union leaders, judges, and journalists. Hold on. Time out. Time out. Time out. Could you run that by me again? And he said, I'll send John Mattis to Columbia. He'll bring him back. And that's when the prosecutor said, oh, we'll get him immunity. It was like they were putting fuel on the fire of George Morales's dreams and my nightmare that they were going to lay up my feet. And I was politely taken aback. But I kept a straight face. And as soon as they left the room, I screamed at Morales, oh, what the fuck did you get me into? Wait, hold on, hold on. Not in the picture, not interested. I don't want to know what you're talking about. But he convinced me. It happened rather quickly, the way he would approach life. It's like, yeah, just get on a plane. George says, oh, they'll meet you. It's like, who? What? Don't worry. And so I did. I get on the flight from Miami. It's like, is this a one-way ticket? Around this time, the cartels have not only put a million-dollar bounty on DEA agents and vowed to kill anyone informing to the DEA, but they've also promised to kill five Americans for every Colombian drug trafficker extradited to America. Given Mattis, a tall, blonde-haired American who doesn't speak Spanish, is going to Colombia to assist in the conviction of an extradited cartel boss, he's got a pretty good reason to be concerned here. And I get to Bogota, and, and they open the door. And then I step off the plane and about to walk up the concourse, and I get a tap on the shoulder. The guy says, come on down here. And I look, and it's that small staircase you have coming off the plane. Like, no, 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 no. I want to go down the causeway where everyone else is going into the terminal. And he points to me down the little pilot's staircase from the sky bridge and he sort of just doesn't push me but anyway opens the door so there i am walked down to the tarmac it was dark it wasn't bright lights and there is a van with a couple guys with uzis none of them had uniforms and one of them in broken english said welcome to bogota john i was like at least i know my name they said get in and that's when they told me to lie down because they didn't want my head in the windows, the van. So we pilot off and we had a police escort, but it was like a parade. It was like, this is not low key. So we're flying through the streets of Bogota and they unload me in front of this very nice business hotel, serious people in it. Walk in and then I realized there are more guys with guns in the hotel. Um, so I get up to the room, and one of the guys with his Uzi walks in the room and says, looks around, and I'm thinking, you can find me the bathrobes or anything? No. He found me this most solid desk that he said, you're going to be able to push that against the door tonight. I was like, oh, okay. And he said, either myself or 
blank will be sitting outside your door all night. So that was my accommodations. It was during those days I was in Bogota was when the cartel blew up a number of the political offices of all of the major parties in Bogota. So, you know, those weren't fireworks in the background. Half a ton of dynamite ripped apart a city block of Colombia's capital. It was morning rush hour in Bogota. 63 people died. Over 200 were wounded. And in the morning, I pushed the desk away and gingerly opened the door, and there's a guy right there. So they take me down to the lobby, and after breakfast, they go, you're going to go into the conference room. And there in the conference room were more guys and a man sitting there, just guy in a suit in his 20s or 30s, in good shape, not super built up, looking very relaxed. And he introduced himself. Tito was this infamous character who was the chief of security for George Morales. He followed every kilo of cocaine, every dollar. So every time there was a flight or any go-fast boat shipment of cocaine, Tito was there supervising. Make sure not a dollar got taken or a kilo of cocaine got lost. What was most notorious about Tito was he would supervise multiple cigarette boats coming from Bimini to South Florida in the middle of the night full of cocaine. He didn't want any of the boat captains to drive off in the middle of the night with their go-fast load full of cocaine. So he would stand on the bow of the lead cigarette boat with his rocket launcher, courtesy the Contras. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat in the middle of the night with a rocket launcher, and all he says to the boat captains, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. And people took him very seriously. When I first talked to him, I said, you know, if you come to the United States in a secret sealed agreement with the Justice Department, you're going to have to admit to all your crimes. And he said, well, how am I supposed to remember them all? I've worked every day of my life since I was 14. He was a hardworking Colombian, and every day he went to work. Well, every day he went to work guarding loads of cocaine or millions of dollars in cash. And I said, well, do you understand what is being asked of you? I.e., you're going to leave Colombia, where you've never been charged with a crime. You're going to then fly to Tulsa, Oklahoma, admit every crime you've ever committed, and then you're going to testify in open court against the cartel leader and leave through the same door you came in and hopefully not cause any problems for yourself. And he goes, yes. I was like, do we need to discuss this? Is there any finessing? And that's when he said, well, you know, I have no name, no identity. And I go, yeah, I know that. Uh, and he goes, well, you'll take care of that. So the first order of business was getting him temporary passage into the United States with this sealed envelope. So I had to take him to the embassy, which was interesting in and of itself, because in the middle of a war, there were armored personnel carriers, there were blast shield walls extending about a block away from the embassy. So 
we get out a block from the embassy and I'm like, I am just trying to act like I don't exist walking down a street in Bogota near the U.S. Embassy where every cartel hitman was aiming. We get to the first Marines and they're like, who are you? And finally we get like through five layers of security and through one layer of bureaucrat. So finally the DEA attache is called. So they took his photograph. They took his fingerprints. To him, it was just to walk in a park. But I guess if you're the chief of security for a cartel, things don't set you back. So we then leave, and then they final words to me were, good luck. It's like, why do I need good luck to get out of here? Like, come on, guys. And the next day, book a regular flight, Avianca flight, back to Miami. And we get to the airport and we get ushered onto the plane. That was a relief, like, bye-bye Bogota, bye-bye cartels. I sit down and all of a sudden he starts shaking. I was like, oh my God, what's happened? This guy's gonna have a nervous breakdown on the plane. Does he have a weapon? Is there gonna be something really bad happening? And I tap Michael, are you okay? He goes, get me a drink. I was like, okay, the plane hasn't taken off, but we can arrange that. I go, what's the problem? He goes, I've never been on a commercial airplane in my life. I go, what do you mean? You've been all over the world. He goes, I know, but I've never sat in a commercial aircraft. He'd flown on planes all his life. <laughs> Every day of the week, he was on a plane, but just big commercial aircraft with people on board, not cocaine. I guess that makes you nervous. And I was like, oh, that's an easy problem. No one shoots you. There are not a lot of guns. They even serve you food. And you don't have to keep track of the cocaine or the money. This should be a nice, relaxing trip. So three drinks later, he's okay. It was bizarre. So we get off in Miami with the same sealed envelope. It had been resealed with a bigger envelope like U.S. Embassy. I was like, didn't want anyone to see that. So we get off the plane, go to immigration room. I go, you need to take this envelope to your supervisors and take us to your supervisor because he doesn't have a passport. I don't even know who he is. I didn't know what name they had given him. And, and they escort us to like one office after another office after another. So they open up the envelope and they go, mm, 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 okay. And it's like page after page after page. And that was it. We're in the United States. So then immediately the next day, had to start the debriefing of his criminal activity because they were afraid he wouldn't make it to trial, that he would be hunted. They had to take his testimony of every criminal act he had committed since he was like 15. And I was like, how many cups of coffee am I gonna need? And the hours went by and you know, the guy had a really good memory of all the loads of cocaine and all of the people he knew. And, you know, and he would add his color commentary as to what he thought about all these people along the way. He didn't like Mano Bayo. Some people were very stand-up. Some people were cheats. Some people weren't moral. I don't know what that was in his mind. Well, in the middle of it, he then goes on a tirade about the crooked contras 
he distrusted them. So he was always watching them, thinking that they were literally going to put their hand in a double bag and grab a few thousand dollars. So that became an element of the case. So this was the debriefing, and it went on and on and on. So prior to trial, Morales is convinced Gary Betzner to testify. He has Tito. So now there is a real solid lineup of people who had direct knowledge of a Bay of smuggling because Gary Betzner was the pilot and Tito was the co-pilot on many of the loads for Abeo. So from an evidentiary standpoint, it really painted Abeo into a corner. And the question was, what would he do to stop the trial? Now, prior to trial, the prosecutors called us in and told us that Mono Abeo had a contract out targeting the judge, the prosecutor, and the witnesses in the upcoming trial. But it was a real fear. This became a really high security concern because of the threats to the government witnesses and to the prosecutor and the judge. So the whole wing of the Muskogee County Jail top floor became the witness wing with George Morales holding court with the pilots. And it was like a clubhouse. This was not just a rumor. This was, they took it very seriously. And as well they should. Bale was not a pleasant person. And Morales said he would look into it. Um, so before Morales and Tito can testify against the cartel boss, Mano Abeo, Abeo puts out a hit, not just on the witnesses and the prosecutor in the case, but also on the judge. While Morales feels personally safe in prison, to keep the case going, he decides to help save the judge and the prosecutors. And then Morales had arranged through either Tito or other relatives pictures would show that Morales could get to Abeo's wife. It's pictures of a house on a hill in the middle of the jungle. This hideout where Abeo's wife was. Morales also said that they had left a calling card, 55-gallon drums of gasoline or whatever, to convince Abeo not to have the contract carried out or his wife would be blown up or something to that effect. And when Morales circulated the pictures, Abeo had second thoughts. I never knew the full details. They're sitting with a judge, with a prosecutor. All I could say to the prosecutors is, according to Morales, there is no longer a threat. And the prosecutor looks at me and goes, are you CIA? I go, no. He goes, I thought you'd have to say that. It's just too weird. You know, it was like, it was just weird on a personal level. So the trial goes on. Gary Betzner testifies, and then Tito walks in the front door of the courtroom in his Armani suit, in his aviator glasses, and sits down. And because he was so cool and collected, because that's just who he was, the testimony became jaw-dropping. I mean, his testimony was spot on, dead on to the number of 
Quaaludes to the number of kilos of cocaine. He nailed Mono Bale. So to cross-examine him, Racehorse Haynes digs up his statements to law enforcement about the Contras and the CIA, thinking, I'm going to get this guy to admit that this whole thing was a fabrication. Well, in fact, Tito doubled down. His testimony was just simple, straightforward, no ambiguity. It was, yes, the Contra leaders had me smuggle arms down. Yes, they had me smuggle cocaine back. Yes, we landed at a public airport and we were protected. The next day, the headline was, government witness puts the Contra leaders as smuggling cocaine with the CIA. So that testimony became irrefutable because he was under cross-examination. So you would think we've got one of the best defense lawyers in the United States picking him apart. If he's fabricating, they would have eviscerated him. And then in fact, it was stone cold the truth. The testimony of, of Hemingway solidified the narrative, the truth regarding what the CIA had done. And the trial then ended with a conviction for Mono Abeo, and he went away for a decade or two. Um, so that was Tulsa. And Hemingway disappeared into the white, wherever to the shadows where he had come from. Subsequent to that, the prosecutors did what they said they were going to do. They came to South Florida and they testified to the judge to what extent George Morales had gone to provide them witnesses and helping them put together the elements of the case that allowed them to put a very dangerous trafficker behind bars. And subsequently, the judge took that under consideration and Mr. Morales, George, was released on parole. Gary Betzner's sentence was reduced and everyone went home. Were you surprised by that outcome? Totally. I, I, would I have believed that George Morales could orchestrate his own, as he called, escape from jail? It floored me. Thanks for listening. I'm Jack Ryan. And I'm John Cryer. Come back next week as the Kerry Committee presents its findings, the Cold War ends, and we find out what a 30-plus year scandal has to do with what's happening in America today on the last episode of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Lawyers, Guns, and Money is a Discount Sushi and Bunker Crew Media production in association with MSW Media. It was produced by John Cryer and Jack Bryan. It was written and edited by Jack Bryan. Due to licensing constraints, a couple of the archive clips in this episode are reproductions. Special thanks to Dennis Bernstein for allowing us to use his interview with Jack Terrell. Special thanks also to Ian Masters for allowing us to use his interview with Jack. Copyright 2023. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again on the next episode of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Enjoy.